Hello, and welcome to the Root Pedersen podcast series on the circular economy. My name is Kevin Bradley, and I'm a senior advisor at Root Pedersen Public Affairs, following all things related to the EU agenda on resources management and product policy. In this series, we are looking at the different steps and measures the EU is taking to make its economy low carbon, greener, circular, resilient, resource secure, as well as resource and energy efficient. I'm sure you'll all agree that's an ambitious agenda. In 2020, as part of the Green Deal, the Commission adopted a revised circular economy action plan, which set out a range of legislative and other initiatives designed to drive and increase circular processes in the EU and member state economies. One of the promised initiatives was the Sustainable Products Initiative. The reason for addressing products is pretty straightforward. These are what citizens and consumers use and consume every day. They're manufactured using energy and resources, and they eventually become waste. Policymakers and some stakeholders believe that if we can influence how products are designed and manufactured, we can help reduce the resource, carbon, and environmental footprint of these products. In addition, we can increase recycling to create greater circularity of the products we use and consume. Last month, the Commission published a significant proposal for a new regulation on eco-design for sustainable products. Today, we're going to take a look at this proposal from the perspective of an EU manufacturing sector, in this case, the home appliance industry. So I'm very pleased to welcome to the podcast, Paolo Falcioni, Director General of Aplia, the European Home Appliance Association. Paolo has been Aplia's Director General since 2014, he is one of the founders of the International Roundtable of Household Appliance Manufacturers Associations, which tackles worldwide issues like sustainability and innovation in a global manner. He is a board member of Smart Energy Europe, fostering demand-side management to help consumers reap the benefits of the new energy market. Paolo is a graduate in electrical engineering from the University of Ancona in Italy and started working in the telecommunications sector before moving to the home appliance sector. Paolo. Good morning. You're very welcome to the podcast and thank you for taking the time to talk to us. My pleasure. If I can start with some general questions. Stakeholders broadly are calling the Commission's recent proposal to expand the scope of the eco-design approach to all products a significant measure to support the circular economy. How do you and the home appliance industry see it from a practical perspective? Well, I would start by saying that only in the last year, eco-design requirements saved the consumers 120 billion euros in energy costs. And I'm really glad that the executive vice president, Franz Timmermans, publicly acknowledged a result that comes mainly from the coma plant sector that I'm here today to represent. After about 25 years of being at the center of eco-design and energy labeling, the results are under everybody's eye. Actually, the current eco-design directive has in fact been successful in delivering on environmental, energy efficiency, and decarbonization objectives, regulating measurable, verifiable parameters of the product on the basis of a clear and transparent methodology. As such, the proposed expansion to non-energy-related products, the risk having serious unintended consequences, questioning its proven legal ground, 
regulatory process and methodology, not to mention the enormity of the task at hand and the limited resources that apparently the European Commission is experiencing. You're kind of confirming that the current eco-design directive has been broadly successful in achieving its goal, but you're also indicating this question about how do you move from a very targeted uh, group of products to a broader set of products? For instance, at the launch of the initiative in April, the Environment Commissioner, Sinchevitsis, he noted the biggest challenge for the Commission will be regulating products separately. The uh, scale of the challenge, it's big and it is unprecedented, I, I would say. And, and that is the reason why, uh, to us, instead of revising the 2009 regulation, parallel legislation with appropriate methodologies should be considered for non-energy-related products, taking the inspiration from the group practices of the existing uh, eco-design. But in any case, I would like to actually praise the Commission by saying that if implemented correctly, and if it might be a big if, the Sustainable Products Initiative has the potential to establish a win-win scenario for both the environment and European manufacturers. But to allow this to happen, policy objectives, choices, and incentives across all the policy areas must be implemented in a clear and consistent manner to create a real market for sustainable city or business model and opportunities from product like cycle perspective. And here, the key word, it is market or sustainable city or business models. We do believe that the role of the European Commission and the legislation overall, it is to create the right condition for the market to flourish, not to stiffen innovation. And that is the clear balance that we have to keep between a legislation that is driving the right thing with respect to the legislation that is actually tying the hands of innovation. Okay, that's very important, that point about stifling innovation. When we look at some of the specific aspects of the, of the proposal, this is going to be controversial, but it sits right in the middle when one talks about innovation, the general use of materials. And that's the question of substances of concern. For the first time, I've seen that phrase defined in the regulation. There's a specific definition for substance of concerns. Now, it includes familiar substances with hazard properties that we know well, CMRs and and uh, PBT and so on, but it also includes a range of to-be-defined uh, new hazard classes and includes substances that negatively affect reuse and recycling of materials in the product in which it's present. I, I have a hypothetical question to put back to you to sort of uh, see how this might work in practice. If we take stainless steel, uh, I'm familiar with this because I used to work in the nickel industry. It's an alloy used in home appliance products. It may contain nickel, and nickel is a carcinogenic category two substance, which would fall under this definition of a substance of concern. So my question is, no more stainless steel? 
And more broadly, do we have to be careful about how that's applied, this regulation of substance of concern? Well, let me start by saying that products should not and actually do not contain dangerous substances today. There are regulations like Ross and Ridge that are already banning dangerous substances to be used in articles. The Commission outlines uh, in this proposal that the regulation should build on other new policies, but there should complement or then duplicate product requirements. And here, I think that for SPI, the general approach should be that this regulation should set requirements where existing legislation does not. So we are actually concerned in setting too too wide or unclear definitions related to substances of concern, because that could lead to double requirements on products that are already subject to other legislative framework and generating an atmosphere with a lack of legal clarity and certainty when it comes to compliance, not only to SPI and related legal design rules, but also to chemical legislations. Chemicals are well regulated already for our products today through chemical legislation, such as Rich and Ross. Which, for example, the latter has been successfully implemented regarding the reduction of the use of hazardous substances in electric and electronic equipments. So I would imagine that there will be steel products with stainless steel. Good. I r- recall a case a few years ago, it was in during the, the toys directive actually, but it was resolved very quickly when people understood that the material is different from the Post the hazardous substance of which it contains. But that's, I think, uh, probably what will happen in reality as we, as we know. But I, I also agree with you that we have an excellent framework for regulating chemicals in REACH and also ROS. I know there has been some criticism of the ROS uh, directive and approach, but broadly speaking, it has served us well. So we should uh, ensure that we, what's the expression, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater when we're uh, approaching this. Uh, If I can turn to something that I think is also going to be innovative here, and it goes back to your point about sort of step forward in terms of uh, approaches to products. The regulation seems to be requiring what looks like a kind of a product sustainability assessment, assessing a product from a broader range of parameters than in, say, currently energy, but also looking at the environmental carbon footprint and so on. However, The regulation is not clear uh, on what it is exactly and who will carry it out. And in fact, there are suggestions here that they'll tailor make it according to the product group, which might be true, might be necessary, but shouldn't industry have more certainty about the process than at the end of this process, uh, there'll be an assessment and we will know what that looks like. What's your initial take on this? Well, indeed, today, what we can understand from the product sustainability assessment, it is actually an idea of what could can, but that might be relegated to secondary legislation, while uh, to us, it is extremely important uh, that all aspect-related products uh, are actually 
assessment and discussed through a joint assessment of the European Parliament and the Council for what should come next. I think that the key point that I would like to underline it is that legislation should set the goal of driving innovation toward more sustainable products, while the industry should have the flexibility to implement the best way to reach the goal. And here it is, to me, the big difference between a legislation that is shaping the future direction, but giving a goal to industry with respect to a prescriptive or two prescriptive legislation that is actually entering into the design realms and telling designers what to do. This is not good because there is a clear knowledge gap between the designers that are doing their job every day and legislators. Legislation should set a goal, which should be even an ambitious goal, but allow the industry the freedom to get to that goal. I certainly see the concern that you have there. So would allowing companies to negotiate voluntary agreements using the goals and principles that will be established, would that be an, also a better way to work on product sectors? I'm thinking of the textile sector, which is a very different type of animal when it comes to products. It might be better suited for voluntary approaches linked to hard targets and goals set by legislators? Well, to, to me, voluntary agreements are a viable way forward that should be evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis. I would definitely support to keep it as an option to reach the goal that legislation must set to the entire industry and in the end to entire society because Let's not forget that while legislation it is addressing the industry, then the real gain of the legislation it is when we all work together, industry, consumers, legislations, and we all take up the challenge to improve the situation. So voluntary agreements are definitely a tool in the hands of the uh, industry, are not the only tool, but must definitely be kept as one of the possible. I think that's, uh, I think that's absolutely, absolutely right. There needs to be that uh, possibility to use that uh, approach to depending on the product sector. If I can turn to the question of information and labeling, we got an indication of it from the batteries regulation where there was the first mention of this idea of a, a battery passport. Now we see the same approach being proposed in the context of the uh, eco-design for sustainable products to have a product passport. I know that with the massive amounts of, of data, but also the capacity we have to manage that data that we can actually do this. The question is, and I think you posed it yourselves in your own press statements, it is crucial to ensure that information collected will ultimately represent an added value to all involved actors and consumers. Can you elaborate on your concern here? Do you think it will bring added value? Well, I, I would start by quoting uh, Commissioner uh, Sintiricius. He said that the digital passport will become the norm so that products can be tagged 
identify and link to sustainability. But my question here is what problem are we exactly willing to solve with this passport? And what would be the contribution to the reduction of the environmental footprint of products using the digital product passport? Or would it not be the opposite, given that there is also a footprint for any digital information that is kept somewhere? So my view would be this, that while the tool could be useful in providing greater transparency in the supply chain, then we would have to assess on a sector by sector and on a product by product, whether that is really giving a contribution to the reduction, the environmental footprint of problem. What I would like to, to see, and that I've not seen so far, it is a cost-benefit analysis that is proving beyond any doubt that we are not adding a tool for the sake of adding a tool. And where are the demonstrated environmental benefits? If I take the lessons learned from April, which is the information system that is linked with the energy labeling, I think that we should all learn from that experience and bear that in mind that before embarking ourselves into a gigantic like database of everything that is uh, sold today on the market. So I would take that with a grain of salt and understand better where are the benefits of the tool. Right. That's uh, a, fair, a good assessment. The proposal was accompanied by five or six staff working documents, uh, some of them including the impact assessment. So I might go searching for this this part of the impact assessment that that looked at the added value of the, the digital passport. We want to be careful not to be pursuing information for the sake of it and storing it for the sake of it, because it must have some added value, some benefit for market surveillance or benefit for recyclers or whatever. There's many, many more questions I could ask you about. We're here now. This is uh, the end of April. The proposal is just being launched. You and your colleagues in Aplia and other stakeholders are all trying to, I think, take it all in, try to understand it before sort of getting ready to talk to the institutions who are also looking at this. And I'm talking about the council and the parliament. Uh, they're going to have their input. So as we know, the ink is never dry until the trilogue, the final end piece of discussions and negotiations between the institutions is over. It's unlikely, as we know, that the broad basis of the proposal would change fundamentally, but the two institutions could insert some particular either extra requirements or refine them in some, in some particular way. But at this stage, would you say that the broad objectives and key performance indicators or impacts, which the commission is saying in its own impact assessment will be met, citizens benefiting from wider availability of sustainable products, the worst performing products will be removed, high quality recycling of products, improved availability of information on the sustainability dimension. Would you say, broadly speaking, that's the direction we're going or not? Well, 
first of all, to me, the SPI looks as a kind of catch-all legislation that is putting together eco-design, energy labeling, waste legislation, chemical legislation, and market surveillance legislation, all in a single goal. But then if I distance myself a little bit overall, the initiative seems to be a promising solution towards creating a policy landscape where sustainable products are the norm. And that is a lot of volume. However, to make the most of it, it is key that we all move towards a coherent EU policy framework for a circular economy that must preserve key concepts, the European single market, so no national deviation whatsoever, competition, so fair competition should be enabled wherever products are manufactured, whether they are manufactured in EU or outside of the EU. It must preserve innovation. It must preserve the capability of the industry to innovate, to reach specific set goal by the legislation. And for this to happen, then policy objectives, choices, incentives must be clear and consistently implemented to create, and I come at the beginning of my speech, a market for sustainable secure business models and opportunities from a product life cycle perspective. Okay. I'm going to take that positive viewpoint myself. I, I too certainly believe that we need a consistent basis for having sustainable products. So defining what it is, a process for achieving it, but one which, as you just pointed out, should not lead to unfair competition and certainly preserve the ability of uh, European industry to uh, be innovative and addressing the needs of consumers, but also the, the needs we have to address uh, climate change, um, resource use, uh, and so on. So Paolo, thank you uh, very much for sharing your thoughts uh, with us today on this important initiative. I know it's early days, I could say I'd like to talk to you at the end of the year and see where you feel things have got. Right now, I think we have to hand it over to the uh, co-legislators of the European Parliament uh, and the Council. I hope, too, that they will listen to APLIA and to other stakeholders, particularly around the points you've made, that this has to be a way to broaden and deepen the internal market approach, uh, ensure fair competition, and preserve uh, Europe's capacity to innovate, while at the same time, as you say, really contributing to the creation of circular business models, which I think if there's one thing which the tragedy in the last couple of months has shown us, is that we do need to be more self-reliant and resilient uh, in the European Union. So Paolo, again, thank you very much uh, for your time. Uh, I could wish you and Apli a, a good lobbying exercise, if that's the word, bringing your perspective into that discussion. Thank you again for participating in this, uh, our first of our series on the circular economy. Thank you.